again. This is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs of Atid with another edition of our Jewish Educators Book Club. In 1959, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, in describing the Brisker method, the revolutionary uh, mode of Talmud study innovated by his grandfather, the great Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, Rabbi Chaim Abrisk, Rabbi Soloveitchik described that the part of the innovation of the Brisker method was that it casts a bright light on each and every subject that Reb Chaim dealt with. The truth revealed to him radiates splendor. There's a truth that is reticent and there's a truth which reveals her face unto man. Before the shiurim of Reb Chaim, and Reb Chaim's sons, Reb Moshe, and Reb Yitzchak Zev, Reb Velvel Soloveitchik, the students were perplexed on the pathways of the halacha, not knowing where to turn or what to seek. They could not see the paved path nor the paved road, but were trapped in a vicious cycle, unable to free themselves from it. When Reb Chaim or his sons would conclude their shiurim, the situation had entirely changed. Suddenly, great light, light shone forth. The perplexity disappeared. The crooked roads lay straight before them, and the vicious cycle was broken. The students were liberated. Everything became so simple, so clear, so elementary, so much so that they wondered why they themselves hadn't explained the position of the Rambam or the statement of Tosvos as had their rebellion. Why, they would ask, hadn't they themselves grasped the central point of the matter? But their teachers had not innovated anything at all. They merely removed the veil from the pretty face of Halakha and all became enchanted by her beauty. So what can this be compared to someone suddenly awoken in the middle of the night, unable to grasp his surroundings? For a brief moment, he's lost his bearings. It seems as if the, as if the bed is askew and he's spread across its width, grasping hither and yon in the dark, as if the door, which had always been just on the other side of the bed, is now right on top of him. All of the furnishings in the rooms have become distorted and unreal. Suddenly he finds the light switch, flicks it, and bright light floods the room. All becomes normal as he regains his bearings. He wonders why he'd been unable to picture the room and its furnishings in the dark. Why had the picture become distorted when now all is so clear and simple? That description of the Brisker method resonated in my head as I began reading a new book by today's guest, Rabbi Yonasan, Rabbi Johnny Hughes, Understanding Reb Chaim. Reb Chaim Halevi Salavechik Zetzal of Brisk, translated, interpreted, and elucidated. A new volume, published by himself, available through his website, understandingrebchaim.com. That's understanding, R-E-B-C-H-A-I-M.com, and in fine Jewish bookstores and elsewhere on the internet. Rabbi Yuz, uh, welcome. Thank you. Um, Tell us a little bit about, about the book. The book is the product of three years of graft to try and bring to the public attention the mesmerizing Talmudic uh, analysis of Reb Chaim. I think it's safe to say that hitherto uh, Reb Chaim's work has been a closed book to many, those who lack the sufficient textual skills and the background in uh, a Lombardish Sprach will struggle to, to penetrate what, would, what is a kind of opaque, brisker, uh, Lombardish technical world. So I, my, my attempt uh, was to bring 
uh, that lumbers to the public attention to make uh, the Torah community, uh, the English-speaking Torah community, um, have the opportunity for the first time to uh, delve into the text, to, to make it understandable to them, to make that which may seem complex simple, which I think was in line with the intentions of Rukhaim in his day, as you most eloquently said, to illuminate to his Talmudim, that which was complicated is really simple. The, the book is a translation of ten pieces of the famous Chidushe Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi, Reb Chaim Salvechik's work on the Rambam's Mishnah Torah. Um, it contains the original text, the primary text of of the writings of Reb Chaim. Yeah. Uh, you've also done a service to uh, to uh, to the learner by bringing the texts and translations of the Rambam on which Reb Chaim is commenting, as well as your own um, uh, the, the paraphernalia that you've included of explanatory footnotes and excursies that try to uh, summarize step by step what Reb Chaim is, what, what's the question here, what's his line of attack in reaching a, a solution, a resolution. Very often, in, in most cases, Reb Chaim was motivated by what appear to be contradictions within the Rambam's teaching, an idea which is, of course, intolerable to uh, teachers, uh, students of Torah, that the Rambam should contradict himself, and to resolve those contradictions by, uh, by, by showing, well, a, a number of things that the Rambam was talking about, different, different, uh, different halachot, tzvei uh, dinim, in the famous parlance of, of uh, Reb Chaim, etc., uh, uh, etc., et and then uh, a summary to each This is the first. This is the first time that Reb Chaim has been translated in this in this way. I think in this way, and yeah. in terms of a published um, volume um, translated and elucidated in this way, I think it's the first book of its, of its kind. Uh-huh. But in other words, it's not. It, although it is a translation, it's much more than that. It's a tool for the learner to make his way through, uh, step by step, uh, through a piece of through a piece of Reb Chaim. And I must say, it's also. Um, it's also done very um, it, it, graphically. It's done very nicely. The uh, the representation, the way that the, the each chapter is broken down, so that the the learner, the reader, uh, can distinguish the different levels of the text here. What's Reb Chaim's commentary? What's the quote from the Rambam? When you're speaking and not Reb Chaim, you know that happens sometimes that a, a translator will work on something. Right. And, and uh, or will annotate something, and it, it, the lines between the author's original words and the translator interloping right. himself are a little unclear. There's there's some uh, there's some uh, intellectual dishonesty there, and that is there's not a shemetz of that. There's not a there's not a kernel of that uh, here in uh, here in, in this work. I think that you should be uh, you should be praised for that in terms of keeping everything very clear, so the student knows exactly. What's going on here? He's reading, he's reading a, uh, a 12th century text from the Rambam. He's reading a 19th or early 20th century text from Reb Chaim, and he's reading the the, uh, the explanation of, uh, of Rabbi Johnny Hughes uh, from uh, from today. Um, all the way from Reading, England. Yeah. All the way from Reading. Now you mentioned Reading, England, and, and I'm sure the listeners can hear in your voice 
that we're sitting with an, with an Englishman. Uh, but an Englishman with an interesting biography. There's a, a recent uh, profile of you in the London Jewish Chronicle, which is available online. I think the website is thejc.com. Um, an interesting profile. Um, you know, uh, the, the subheadline is Rabbi Johnny Hughes had virtually nil Jewish background. Now he teaches in an Orthodox yeshiva. I should just say, by way of introduction, that Rabbi Yuz uh, is a teacher at Yeshivat Midrash Shmuel here in Yerushalayim and at a few other, at a few other um, venues. But you weren't always a teacher in, uh, in yeshiva. No. Maybe you can just give us the highlights of your very interesting biography. The roller coaster ride, in a nutshell. Uh, my father is not Jewish, my mother is Jewish, and I was brought up with absolutely no Jewish identity whatsoever. Um, I think that my mother uh, lit Hanukkah candles, and uh, she, she didn't eat one day a year, which is always perplexing to me. And um, they being in Kippur, big time. And, um, and I really did not have um, any knowledge whatsoever. I considered myself to be like everyone else, just a regular person. I didn't have any Jewish identity or affiliation. Um, and things started to change towards the age of 17, 18, when I became very alienated from my social group. Generally, in, in people of my, of my background, uh, when you're 17, you're out clubbing, you're partying, you're drinking excessively. You're not uh, writing your <laughs> You're not writing your <laughs> <writing the crimes. laughs> um, so, so really, I felt there was a, a, a massive cavity in my, in my spiritual world. There was a, there was a massive hole, yeah, the godless universe. And, I, and I, I felt very, very different to everybody else. Everyone else seemed to be happy to go forth in this way of life, and I felt that must, there must be more to life than this. Uh, when I went to university in London to study law, I sat down in my first uh, class next to a, an Orthodox Jew. And I'd already had this burning passion to find out more about my heritage, and we became great friends, and um, I, had a re I had a grandmother who was living in the Golders Green area of London, which is a, a from section of, of the capital. And um, so I had a link there. He brought me there. I experienced Shabbos. Very soon I was uh, leaving the bacon on the plate. And uh, I, was, I was growing. And um, at the grand age of 20, I had a bris, which uh, had evaded me up until that point. And so that was an ama amazing experience to seal my entry into mm -hmm. Claudius role. And and from then on, I, I, all I could think about was going to Yeshiva. So after I finished uh, my, my degree, I, I flew out to Yerushalayim, and I've been here ever since. Mm -hmm. Now, when, when you, a novice to, to Gemara study, yeah. and, and to Jewish study in general, uh, maybe you can describe your first encounter with Gemara study in general, and with your exposure to Lundus, you know, kind of this, by Lundus I mean the vague catch-all phrase for the style of learning that is almost universal today, uh, I should say almost universal, not completely, um, and which very much so is influenced and sometimes synonymous with what we think of as the brisker method or Chaim's derech. Well, it was interesting. My exposure to Gomorrah first happened when I was in university and I went to uh, different institutions like um, Asia Torah in, 
in Hendon in London and the JLE, which is a branch of Osameach. Um, I also learned with individuals one-on-one -on -one within the, the university's campus and other, and, uh, at other forums. So that was when I started learning Gomorrah. But uh, regarding Lombus, ironically that came to me first of all when I was writing a dissertation on abortion. In, in a medical ethics and law class, I had to write a dissertation about abortion and the, the, the arguments about whether, we, whether it's right or wrong. And I, and I wanted to introduce a Jewish take on it, which was my new inspiring way of life. And I came across an argument about how a fetus could be categorized as a roideth, as a pursuer, and could be, um, could be aborted legitimately because it's pursuing the mother. And that, of course, is one of, uh, one of the most famous pieces of Reb Chaim in Hilchus Reitzeach Shmeris Nefesh. And so that's when I first became... Yeah, this in the book. That's yeah. chapter... This is in the book. Chapter 8, I believe. Yeah, chapter 8. And... Um, so that, that was the first time I, I came across Reb Chaim because in my, my research for the dissertation I, I, I found this, this piece. Um, and when I came to Yeshiva... Yeah, you found it referenced in a piece of secondary literature. Absolutely, yeah. I, didn't, I wasn't able to, to pierce through the, the original text. So when I came to Yeshiva, I was extremely pleased and surprised um, that my Rosh Yeshiva is, is a chassid of Reb Chaim. Every Friday, there was a shir in Reb Chaim in Yeshiva given by, by the Rosh Yeshiva of uh, Benjamin Moskowitz. And I, w I lapped it up. It was, um, it was sweets to a child. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and really that inspired me to keep uh, progressing in understanding Reb Chaim. What, 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 what were the characteristics, what were the components of Lambdas? that were so engaging to you? Just the, the, the analysis enabling one to cut to the very core of the sugya, to really uh, reach the, the kernel of truth which unlocks everything, upon which everything is dependent. And I think Reb Chaim gets you straight to that, to that core uh, through the chakira, through the, the categorization of the din. Um, through the, the penetrating questions that he asks. And once you have that, that seed of truth, the rest of the sugya is, is, a, is, in, your, is in the palm of your hand, so mm -hmm. to speak. Who, I mean, who do you think that is, you've now made time available to an audience that can't grapple with the original primary texts? Um, even if they can manage the Gemara and the Rambam, the Reb Chaim itself is sometimes daunting. Um, just, I mean, on the first level, textually, and then certainly conceptually. Um, uh, who, who do you think are the candidates that will benefit from, well, on one level from your book, but exposure to this uh, kind of learning? I think anyone who needs inspiration in, in learning Torah from from the Balabas to the yeshiva student to the Avrech to someone who's, who's, who's left the yeshiva world but still wants to have a connection to high level learning. I think there's a, there's a, a wide variety of people who, who can really benefit from an appreciation of Reb Chaim and of Londres in general. Mm -hmm. I think that it, it really uh, gives people um, such a thrill when, when they have the sugya in the palm of their hand, when they can actually um, grapple with the with the underlying dynamics of, of, of Gomorrah. And I think that uh, many people can get a kick out of that. Mm -hmm.
well, walk me through the one of the pieces, of course, perhaps even the most, uh, dare I say, the most famous or well-known. Uh, if somebody knows only one, one Reb Chaim, there it might be this one, Reb Chaim uh, uh, in Hilchot Tzfilah. It actually appears on the very first page, the second piece in Reb Chaim, but it's there on the very first page uh, of the, at least my edition of Reb Chaim, yeah. uh, the old-fashioned edition. Right. Um, uh, on Hilchot Tzfilah, the Rambam's Tzvei Dinim, the Rambam's Rebchaim's Dinim in Kavana. This is a piece that I've used in my own teaching uh, very often if a, if a high school teacher, let's say, wants to expose uh, students to uh, a piece of Lundus, a piece of Rebchaim, they're going to encounter this. Either they're going to encounter this when they're learning Hilchot Tzfilah or if they're learning the fourth parakam, second brachot, which is very often something that's uh, studied um, you know, in the in the younger grades, um, or is revisited after having been learned in sixth grade by way of introduction uh, to Gemara. Uh, very famous page. The Rambam seems to contradict himself. In one place, he seems to say that you need kavana, intent, focus, in davening for the entirety of the tefillah. And in another place, he seems to say that you need it merely for the first of the nineteen brachot of the of the Amidah. Now. Uh, some might have said, well, the Rambam is talking about L'Chathchil and B'Dyevet. The idealists have Kavana for everything and uh, ex post facto, uh, minimally you have to have for the first. And the critique on Reb Chaim uh, goes towards that, that analysis, which actually, I, I guess on the surface of things, seems, uh, you know, from first blush, seems a simpler understanding. Uh, Chazonish, in his commentary on Reb Chaim, uh, you know, is, is quite harsh this particular Reb Chaim, because uh, <laughs> Reb Chaim claims that the Rambam claims that we've set the, the bar so high for the amount of Kavanah we need, well, nobody could ever daven. It is essentially, I mean, those are my words, uh, but that's essentially what the Chazanish is, is, uh, is saying. Uh, the Reb Chaim sticks to his guns, and he says there are these two different components of, of Kavanah. Um, walk us through. Here we are, we're... we're we're either the novice learner or we're the teacher uh, trying to prepare this. But what are the what are we hoping to accomplish by learning or teaching this piece of Rebchayim to uh, to our students? Imagine a, a, a young high school classroom. Right. I think the essential thing we're trying to achieve is to clarify what we mean when we mention halachic terms like kavana, tefillah, uh, maisa, an action. Kavana, a thought or a meditation, where we're going to actually pierce through uh, and break maybe false suppositions we may have had regarding the definitions of these things. One of the major tradition of this particular piece of Rukhain is that he categorizes the Kavana of acknowledging Hashem's presence in front of you when you daven as more than just a mere halacha in Kavona, rather it's actually, it actually pertains to the validity of the mice of tefillah, that somehow meditative concentration or Kavona can actually impact upon a mice. It actually is part of the integral... Is that, does that impact? It's, it's definitional. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitional. It's, it, it, it's crucial to the mice, and it's not just simply a localized din of, of, of Kavona, which is a mental thing, which is um, divorced from reality or Misa. It's actually part of, part of the fabric of the Misa. So, that, therefore, Kavon, the word Kavona uh, has a completely different 
um, interpretation now, but after learning with Rav Chaim. Um, so that's one of the, the things that we endeavor to do when we understand Rav Chaim is, is to question uh, the definition of something which we had, hold, we, we had held to be true up until that point. Now we have a new, fresh new um, understanding of that particular entity called Kavona. Well, speaking of um, you know our work in in Chinuch and, and and trying to bring these texts and ideas uh, and concepts to the student, you, you and I had an opportunity to talk a little bit about a different book uh, published in the Orthodox Forum series out of Yeshiva University, uh, published by by uh, by uh, Yeshiva University uh, called Lumdus, the conceptual approach to Jewish learning which was edited by Rabbi Yosef Blau and is the proceedings of uh, the Orthodox Forum Conference on, on this topic. And there are a number of pieces in this volume uh, that deal specifically with the educational questions, the, specifically a piece by Rabbi Yosef Adler from Teaneck and uh, Jeremy Weider, Rabbi Jeremy Weider from, uh, from, from YU. Um, and uh, I know you had some, some thoughts on, on, on the educational impact of Right. How this plays itself out, how one introduces Lumdus into the otherwise garden variety teaching where we're going through text and we're trying to teach skills and vocabulary and structure and things that are done in, at those grades or at, at, an, at an older age in a yeshiva that might be catering. Uh, you described your own, your, own, your own background coming to yeshiva without a, a day school background and having Absolutely. to make the sometimes difficult first encounter with the Gemara text. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there are, there are in these two essays differing opinion, opinions as to when the introduction of Londres is most beneficial, whether it sometimes can be counterproductive to introduce it too early, um, who is most receptive to it. From my experience, I think the ones, I think people, individuals who have um, a, a natural nature towards thorough examination and analysis, logical, um, legal type of, of brains, will gravitate to Londus um, at the at at some stage, um, and even more so, even those who aren't naturally attuned to this type of thinking, it will often be a very attractive way of inspiring them into learning. But it can be the the catalyst for. A, a dive into the Talmudic ocean, as it were. Or, on the other hand, people with a background, they can be inspired to grow more in Ian learning as a result of being exposed to, 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 to the brisk alumnus, Derek. So it can have a, a, a major impact on people at both ends of the spectrum. And for those who are attuned to this type of thinking, it will, it will grab them wherever they are and whenever they are. Again, we're talking with Rabbi Yonasan Yuz, Johnny Yuz, about his book, Understanding Reb Chaim. Reb Chaim Halevi Salavichik Salabrisk, translated, interpreted, and elucidated. His website is understandingrebchaim.com, where you can read more about the book and order it, where it's also available in bookstores in Yerushalayim and in New York and Chicago and London and on. And online. What's next in the works? What's your next? I'm actually writing now the second in the Understanding series, okay. Understanding Rebel Khanon, which Rebel is absolutely, he was a Talmud of Reb Chaim. I'm taking it again at ten pieces of his his work, specifically from the Chalik base of Koivit Shidurim, where he has several. Wonderful. 
series of inyonim there. So I'm, I'm, do, I'm trying to do an understanding of time on Rebel Chama. And it'll be a, a similar format. Yes, but uh, no, do you find that do you find it harder to? Uh, I might imagine it might be harder to do the kind of translating, annotating work with Rebbe Hanan and Rebbe Chaim. Are you finding that? It is. It, it is a, a different endeavor. Okay. It has its unique challenges. It is a completely different uh, format and a different type of safer. Um But uh, it, yeah, it, it has posed challenges, but I think we're overcoming them okay. <laughs> at the moment. How did you get the idea to, to turn it into a book, the, the Reb Chaim book? Um, I, I was Zoycha to, to marry an Aishas Chayel. <laughs> I did mention that in the introduction. My wife Hannah suggested that I, that I put pen to paper, uh-huh. or at least a uh, finger to... Well, well we, are all, we are all grateful uh, to her for encouraging you to do that, because we now have Understanding Reb Chaim by Rabbi Yus, which will be a valuable, uh, a valuable uh, uh, entree. I hope for uh, for students to Rebbeim, and I venture it will be a valuable resource to teachers to help students make that entree to the world of Lumbus.